Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the Troxell Podcast. My name is Evan Troxell, and this week I have a conversation with Lucas Reams of Trimble Consulting. And we talk mostly about their latest initiative, which is the 060 Accelerator Program, which is aimed at raising the level of innovation in AEC. So you'll hear a lot about that in this episode. And just to give it a little bit of a history here of of how we got to this conversation, Lucas and I have known each other for quite a long time. He was actually a student of mine at Cal Poly Pomona in the architecture program uh, when I was teaching there. And that's when we first crossed paths, and he established some pretty amazing relationships in his class with some other individuals, and they've gone on to do some amazing things, uh, not least of which is what Lucas is doing now that's brought him on the journey all the way to Trimble. So what originally started for him working in Gary Technologies eventually was acquired by Trimble. And as I alluded to earlier, their latest initiative, which has been going on for a few years now, but I would still consider that relatively young. And that's the Zero Sixty Accelerator Program, which is about developing and fostering innovation in AEC. Many of the other guests that you've heard on this show and will continue to hear on the show Uh, have connections with Lucas. They have been in various cohorts within the 060 Accelerator Program. And, you know, Lucas is just really involved in the AIA. He's really involved in architecture. He's really gets out there. And they've worked with many architectural firms over the years to establish this network. And now they're putting that to great use. So I'm really excited with the work that they're doing. And I'm really excited with their approach to it, which is pretty different and unique compared to most other accelerator programs out there. And in this episode, you'll hear exactly why that is. So some of those other guests that you've maybe already heard or will hear on this show include Ian Keough of Hypar. Hypar has gone into the 060 Accelerator Program, also Clifton Harness with TestFit, and some others that you will continue to hear about, including people from companies such as Tonic and Monograph. This is a very wide-ranging conversation, I think, as these episodes are tending to be, which is great because it really gives you, the listener, the opportunity to kind of listen in and see what's going on out there without going to all the conferences that we can't go to right now and without having these long-form conversations yourself. I really hope that this podcast is providing value to those of you who are listening because I'm really hoping that that's exactly what it's doing for you. So if it's doing that for you, I would love it if you would reach out and let me know. You can just Tweet me on Twitter, just at me, or you can email me at evan at evantroxel.com. I would love to hear from you and hear how this podcast is affecting you. I'm also open to feedback, guest ideas, uh, you name it. You let me know. I would love to hear from you and make this a conversation with everybody out there. So again, evan at evantroxel.com, or you can tweet me at etroxel on Twitter. I would love to hear from you. So without further ado, Please enjoy this conversation with Lucas Reams. Lucas Reams, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Hi, Evan. Yes, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a little bit since I think we've seen each other in person, maybe AU last year. Mm. I think we might have been at some event. Oh, that's right. It was the Tech Plus event, I think. There we go. Yeah. Uh, and then there's various things that I've seen you guys do online. Um, you guys have been hosting some webinars and things like that. There was one that you had like Jam Collective and Evelyn Lee on and, and p- people like that. Uh, that was really cool. So tell us kind of just what, what you've been up to and what what you've been doing with Zero Sixty and Trimble. And I, it just seems to me like maybe a little catch up here real quick. Yeah. So uh, so I guess probably the the latest and greatest is that we we just had our, our last event for our recent 060 cohort. So I guess maybe um, for those that don't know, 060 is uh, an accelerator program within Trimble um, that helps sort of provide a platform for entrepreneurs in the AEC industry um, to find success. And and we are uh, we've just completed our second cohort, and uh, and we're sort of really proud of some of the companies that have been coming out of out of the first couple of rounds and. Right now, I mean, more or less, we're just planning on, on uh, organizing and defining what the, the third version of the 060 Accelerator program is, because 
as part of creating it, you know, has sort of been a test bed for the accelerator itself. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different styles of, of, of accelerator programs out there. And I think that ours is unique and, and we're, we're sort of testing the waters. We, we've specifically been, been looking for companies that are at a certain level of maturity so that they could be sort of along for the ride. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so you have some of these quote unquote serial entrepreneurs like folks over at Hypar and, and join and, and so they've been really critical at sort of giving feedback into the into the accelerator program itself. So so we have a lot of different trajectories that we could take it for the third cohort. And and I think that's sort of what's going on internally uh, with our team right now. That's awesome. So can you explain what a cohort is just so that people understand what 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 do you mean when you say that? Yeah, well, well a, a cohort is, is is the group that's engaged in a certain round of, of the accelerator and and like I said, mentioned, all accelerator programs are different. Um, and, and in our case, uh, just the bones of it are it's equity free, uh, meaning that we're not taking any any ownership in any of the companies. And I think that's an important stance that we're taking at, at this time. And I think it sort of breaks down a lot of barriers that some companies would would see going into certain sort of cohort environments. And and in in, in our case, uh, we're providing, you know, technical resources, whether it be access to, to either various technologies, softwares, but also human technical resources, um, marketing resources, th those sorts of things. Um, uh, every company that's engaged is at sort of a different stage in their career. Some of them have really solid business plans. Some of them are looking to get feedback into those business plans. Some of them are looking to expand their customer base. Um, so, you know, some are looking for sort of fundamental technology aspects on how they would implement what their, you know, their products. So there, there's all these different sort of interests from each of the cohorts. And, and what we do is over the, over a period of initially it was three months with this uh, recent one with the hiccup with COVID, we extended it quite a bit, but over a specific period of time, we would have a structured uh, program that would have a starting point when the company would enter the, into the cohort and then an ending point. And what are the specific goals? And like I said, each of the goals might be slightly different for each. And so like stepping back big picture, the whole point of an accelerator program targeted at AEC with 060, why you started to do this in the first place is you're looking for companies who are interested in changing the profession through technology. Yeah. And, and I guess if you, if you do want to like take a step back, really what it comes down to, at least our, our original interest is that we're, we're within Trimble, Trimble Consulting. Uh, we came through the Gary Technologies acquisition. So we have a history of working with, with Gary partners and that's sort of our, you know, where we came from. That's our heritage. And, and Frank and what he does over at Gary partners, he really sort of paved the way for how a lot of, uh, architects can practice and, and the level of technology that can be used on a project and, and, and how you can have a high level of control over complex design. And so there's a lot of innovation done there. There's innovation, you know, around the, the 3D space, around uh, robotics and, and computer-aided manufacturing. There's innovation around how architects and designers work with fabricators and suppliers and giving the architect more leverage um, into the actual final result of the, the end process using technology. And so there's this real history of innovation and our interest in creating the 060 accelerator was to, to provide a platform for more innovation to happen uh, within the extended architecture community. Um, now that we're, we're under Trimble, we have a much broader reach um, and interest in working with a lot of different, different groups out there. So that, that's really the, the, the initial interest behind starting it was, was to create that platform for entrepreneurs. And then there's a lot of trajectories from there. You know, if you think about it, there's entrepreneurship that could be found in, in, in a variety of different locations. There's, you know, looking at the traditional architecture practice, I just think about how, how much talent is sort of going through the typical motions. You know, you've got your nine to five, you've got your projects, you know, you're pulling a lot of all, late nights, you know, working uh, towards your, your, uh, your deadlines and your, your project milestones and presentations. And then there's a lot of innovation that's happening but it's happening in these quote unquote silos in these pockets. And there may be some very talented individuals that maybe don't have a support structure that they could really explore some of these ideas. And some firms try to, you know, provide 
additional time or maybe some organized programs for their employees to take some interesting innovations that are coming out of, of projects. Um, but in reality, a lot of times, you know, billability and traditional mechanisms come into play and then those get squeezed. And, and what was a, once a very promising idea is now just, you know, an archived presentation sitting somewhere on the server. And, and so that's, that's just like an, an aspect. Then there's all these other spaces, right? Then there's the knowledge coming out, both knowledge and, and just fantastic people coming out of the educational system. We've been looking at possible ways to integrate uh, academia into going from school into starting your own business. Um, and then there's the folks out there that just maybe they the the traditional office environment isn't for them, and they they want to create technology companies and and other types of businesses out there. And then there's the ones that are sort of uh, there's no choice. There's unemployment, or there's maybe too right. many opportunities and. So there's a lot of different factors, and, and our idea was just how do we create a platform for these various types of individuals, groups, talent pools to to flourish? Yeah, I love it because you guys are taking it from a perspective of sharing what you know and what you've learned through working at GT throughout the years, working with lots of different architects all over the globe. You guys kind of had like this Skunk Works vibe, right? Where you and GT's still a thing, right? I mean, is it's you guys still have teams that go out and and do special ops for for architects out there? Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, you, I, I would imagine that you absorb a lot of what they're doing, but they're absorbing a lot of what you're doing. And as far as the profession goes, everybody gets better when that kind of collaboration happens. I would assume. And so now you guys are taking that to the next level with this accelerator program and saying, we see the possible futures out there of what these people, the creativity, the technology that they're bringing to the table. How can you help them not have to start from scratch every single time? I would assume that like coming from it, from that perspective, they get a lot out of it because you guys are offering this up by accepting them into the program, but you're probably getting a lot out of it too. I mean, that it, it's always going to be a two-way street. Yeah, and and the idea of having a cross disciplinary team isn't anything new, but it's just how how you how you structure and implement what that cross disciplinary team looks like, and and a lot of times it's you know done around a project, right? You might have a an owner, you know, organizing the project team early on, and they may say we'll want to uh, design a system here, and we want to create a lot of cross disciplinary functionality, et cetera, and that's sort of the traditional mechanism on how you would execute a project, but then then that sort of gets dissolved. You know, these, these major projects out there come together. There are a lot of different players that are sort of created in this sort of arranged marriage, so to speak. And, right. and, and then they dissolve when they're done and everyone goes their own ways. Yep. And maybe they have some learning experiences, but, but now you're into a new cross-disciplinary team. And, and so in our practice, what we do is we try to take the repeat processes and the executable technologies that allow cross-disciplinary teams to be productive and then from the accelerator perspective it's it's the same thing and, and it's not necessarily just that that, w- that we have the knowledge and resources it's actually the the peer network uh, after our first cohort uh, we had a survey done to see you know what was the value that everyone felt that was provided and and just overall feedback from the first round and one of the major things was just having that peer network of like-minded entrepreneurs that they normally wouldn't have a platform to touch base with on a regular uh, occurrence. Yeah, so you guys have created a community there, right, of, of kind of similarly, like you said, like-minded or like-purpose people. A community of peers, but then also uh, an extended sort of pr- professional network. We've also been um, engaging and inviting uh, outside companies and organizations to participate in some feedback sessions and and some of the uh, business mapping sessions and and I think that everyone sort of is realizing that once you sort of like you take the sales process out of the conversation because that's how normally things would be done right you would have a new company and they need some cash flow and they're looking for some early adopters so they reach out to you know the the ENR top 400 or whatever and and uh, it's the sales process and right. and what 060 does I think is just take that sort of across the table perspective out of it and let's just talk about the ideas, the technologies, the workflow, the, you know, what is this really meant to do? And it just engages a part of the, the brain that, 
that I think needs to be done if you're looking at innovation and entrepreneurship. And so I think not just the peer-to-peer network, but also some of these outside organizations. And and then we've brought a lot of uh, bright minds within Trimble to help help support. And I think I think that's that's really one of the biggest benefits is just having that, like we said, cross-disciplinary, disarmed conversation around how we can actually make real improvements on the things that we're looking to. And then that way people can give real open, candid feedback, say, hey, this thing that you're looking at is, yeah. from our perspective seems a little misguided. If you look over here, that's where the real value is. Mm. So they're bringing that experience, and that's, I can imagine that being super helpful. So, okay, so you guys have had how many companies go through so far? We've had seven. The first uh, round was three, and the second round was four. And also another key difference was the idea was that we would be focused around Los Angeles and we would actually be in a communal space. There's so much interest even worldwide that we ended up having the second round to be decentralized, which has its own um, sets of benefits and, and, and challenges around it. But, but I think all in all, uh, both have been uh, positive and will likely, particularly even with uh, COVID-19 and everything else going on, will likely have the third round be uh, not remote, but distributed. Yeah. Okay. So out of the seven, could you talk about maybe what you would consider to be personally for you? Like what are some of the most exciting things that you've seen go through the system so far? Interesting question. Um, I know they're all your babies and you want, yeah. <laughs> can't just pick one, but, <laughs> but none of them are listening, Lucas. So, okay. So m- most interesting thing that's come out of the, well, you know, I'll pick one, uh, interesting one because it's actually a little bit of an outlier for us um and that's that's the jam group and the reason why I'll, I'll pick them to sort of talk about is is because they they're sort of in the process of developing their business plan right whereas many of the other companies have, have already sort of been fairly mature along the way have a working product and are looking to to scale improve you know improve their go-to-market everything and uh and the jam collective um, they're a, a more or less a group of architects that have come together to start with the challenge first and really try to hone in on on what they can provide that would help solve that challenge. And what that challenge for them is to assist you know small and mid-sized firms to uh, join resources and be able to compete uh, against larger firms uh, that have some of those resources already. And Mm-hmm. And so they'll they'll probably say it way better better than I just did, but um, but this is a really thought provoking question because if you start with that as a as a problem is is how do you take the vast majority of architecture firms out there um, that are you know sm- what would be considered small to mid size um, that are making uh, an underwhelming uh, amount of the revenue that are coming in on projects and billings, then how can you sort of flip the paradigm and give them uh, an even playing field, not not from a, a force perspective, but because they're being competitive. And so they're they're looking at various ways to do that. And and there there are a different lot of ways that you could take that. And um, so some, what we've been working on with them is is there's the human resource aspect of it, of connecting like minded firms that could that could uh, team up on a proposal. But then there's also uh, how technology can pl- can play in that. And if you don't have, you know, the, the 500 person firm with all your HR resources and et cetera, and marketing and biz dev, um, how can technology maybe play a role to help uh, give you some of that? And there's a lot of, a lot of that uh, at play. So, you know, that's just interesting conversations to have and uh, maybe fulfilling part of that conversations that you're seeing it being, you know, come to life within a company. And so is that something that you feel like what you guys are doing at Trimble could really help with on the technology side of things? Or how, how are you like advising them when it comes to, you know, deciding which way to go here? I mean, is that something that they could rely on you for as resources or is that not on the table from you guys? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We That's one of the core aspects of being involved in the accelerator is, is access to technical resources. And we've provided that, you know, to others in the cohorts as well. So but I would say that uh, right now the focus is really honing in on that successful on that successful business plan and then the go to mar- market behind it. Technologies, uh, I think, are are a phase that we would sort of talk about in in, in upcoming sessions. We haven't, uh, at least in this 
cohort, you know, we have limited time. We're not actually implementing technology yet with Jam. Interesting. So you brought up the whole COVID-19 thing when you're talking about the cohorts and when you guys did a distributed cohort and you're probably looking at that next. I'm, I'm interested. I mean, we talked a little bit about we before we started recording about the response from the architectural community when it comes to COVID-19. I mean, there's a lot of obvious examples out there of how people have done that um, with cloud-based working and, you know, Zoom and Teams and all those things. But you talked about looking for other opportunities. And this is something I've really been interested in as well at HMC, right? Because we're seven offices and 350 plus people. And this is a huge opportunity, I think, to once this thing is over to be who we want to be. We could actually be different than who we were going into it, coming out of it, and we could be much better positioned. So do you have any examples or or maybe, you know, where would you want to take that conversation when it comes to how the architectural community has responded in COVID-19 in maybe surprising ways, or maybe there's opportunity there that you're seeing? Yeah. I mean, if, even if you look uh, pre-COVID-19, uh, you know, if, if you, if you're sort of out there talking with various architecture firms and whether it be at conferences like AIA national conferences or just uh, within your network, there's there's always this question that's asked is well, what is the value of the architect and how can we hold on to the value of the architect and for me that's always been an interesting question that may be a little misguided because you know sort of it's like asking Blockbuster how they could hold on to the value of you know renting movies um, you need to evolve and and right. and it may not be just taking a putting a fence around your existing services and the way that you operate um, so obviously technology has played a big role in how industries have been evolving and and not just for architects but with contractors and subs and owners there's you know a fair amount of technology that's been uh implemented and and being taken advantage of so that's one aspect but then in reality there's sort of what what are the different sort of business environments that architects can can play in and 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 how can an architecture firm possibly diversify the sources of income and revenue coming into the firm because the last thing you want to see is uh, in, in any recession or any sort of downturn of projects that folks get a tap on their shoulder and, you know, say, sorry, but we're, we're going to have to let you go. And we see these layoffs and, and that's sort of the, you know, just a broad brushstroke statement, but, but it, it happens. And, and, and why does that happen? Because projects get paused or, or, or canceled and, and then there's no revenue coming into the firm. So there's something to be said about, looking at how firms look at the revenue models and not to be hyper-focused on on either one sort of service offering source of income and 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 then there's the whole billability and charging by hours is another one is that we can jump into but so th- this is all these are all conversations that are happening or or interest or or people are scared of these things sort of pre-covid-19 and then and then covid-19 happens right and then you know, firms are turned upside down. Everybody's got to go uh, uh, work from home. The, you know, the first thing is, well, let's figure figure out our IT infrastructure. How can we access our our documents? How can we share information? Okay, we're going to start uh, using video conferencing, and all these things that need to happen happen. And then preceding that sort of first week when everybody was hunkered down, looking at how they can sort of keep the gears turning. Then following has really been primarily focus on uh, workplace culture and working from home and, and all these sorts of things, which I think are uh, a core aspect that needs to be discussed. But I guess from my perspective, it's been hyper-focused on that and maybe not some of these other things, looking at some of the opportunities on how we can come out of COVID-19. And I, I would like to see the extended architecture community see how we can leapfrog and maybe if we have been behind in certain aspects, how we can take this as an opportunity to take two steps ahead when we come out of it. And that's looking at different business offerings, whether it be technologies, I think low hanging fruit, because there's a lot of uh, interesting uh, ways that firms are using technology. There's maybe looking at for architects to be involved in the, in buildings beyond just providing construction documents set. And we also uh, fall in the trap of thinking about buildings as, or architects, and owners and contractors as this general statement. But in reality, there's there's different markets, there's different building typologies, there's different regions, there's various specialties. I mean, the building industry is so big 
that there's so many opportunities to to sort of uh, put your stake in the ground a little bit further out than what you're normally used to. It seems to me like most architects come to answer almost every question with, you know, it needing to be a building. And it seems like there's, like you said, the the field is so huge. There's so many other options out there that we could be providing value with. And I think, you know, you said, I actually have a slide in one of my presentations that, and I, I'm sure this is not original, so I can't remember where it came from. But, um, you know, the wrong question is, is what is the changing value of the architect? The right question is, what do people who own or are building buildings need? Because that's where our expertise is. And you can look at that from, not everybody needs a new building. Not everybody even needs to remodel their building. There's so many other things going on there. I've got a campus full of buildings. What do I do with them? All of a sudden, half those buildings are empty. What am I going to do with them? And you could start being a matchmaker for them to rent space out for different tenants they could there's lots of ways that this whole thing could shift around like i can't tell you how many empty storefronts there are now that i see when i drive around one of the ideas that we've had in our company is like okay well city infrastructure is totally screwed right now because you can't have large gatherings anywhere so what if you just have pop-up shops everywhere for city services put those services closer to the people who need them instead of having everybody come to one place distribute that and use those spaces effectively when you need to, right? It doesn't always need to stay like that. So I, I do think that we tend to get tunnel vision around the type of work that we do, and it is very hard for people to shift gears. But I think those who can shift gears and start to think about these things differently are going to come out in a much better position on the other side of this. And, and it is kind of hard to turn the ship, right? Because you have to think about it in the perspective of if you're a firm providing, you know, you specialize in this area and, and, and you, you know, you do design development, construction documents, it's kind of hard to say, okay, well, how do we, how do we support a pop-up shop that's, you know, happening next week? Right. Yeah. It's a completely different mindset, yep. but I think that's the disruption that, that needs to happen. And, and could that conversation could be happening as firms are planning during this, this crisis and how to come out of it. Yeah, definitely. So I mean, have you seen any good examples of architects expanding into other service areas that you're talking about? You know, I think uh, in, in our last session that we had in our closeout cohort, there was a long conversation around sort of architect as developer and mm-hmm. and there's sort of, uh, I think, pluses and minuses to that as a model. Uh, I think that there's been, you know, some uh, some cases where firms are looking at building sort of in-house technology groups in in a way maybe kind of how Gary Technologies started but this this time more focused on on product whereas we eventually became a, a group of, of people that uh, that would uh, work on projects and solve sort of these these major challenges and uh, a lot of these firms are out there now looking at building uh, in-house technologies and you know possibly selling those or or spinning them off into their own companies so I think there's a, a lot to be said around that. Yeah, it seems to me like that's a kind of a natural thing, right? You're going to definitely find a group of passionate people in a company that's medium to large size that is going to want to pursue that. And and maybe with a lack of work in one area, there is the bandwidth to transfer that into something else like you're talking about and spin it off and make it its own thing. That seems interesting to me. Yeah, and it's and if you think about that's why I brought up Jam Jam's model earlier on because, you know, they're looking at at connecting the right resources for the right project at the right time. And and their motive is once again to help, you know, give this platform to small to mid-sized firms that don't don't normally have those resources. But you could also apply that logic to to larger firms, right? I mean, um, we see a lot of, of of owners starting to bring in architects in-house and it really expanding in that space, not necessarily for architectural services, but just because of the knowledge that they provide. So there's there's a clear need to have the knowledge of architects sort of spread beyond just the design process. So if there's a way for firms to do that and be flexible and find those sort of right right timed opportunities, then then it could be done before design and it could be done after design. Yeah, I think that that's something that I, I think about a lot is how does the whole profession move forward? And I would think that, you know, things like Zero Sixty and things like Jam and, you know, startups like like Hypar 
where they're trying to create platforms for everybody to use or create communities around those, you know, like-minded people and like-purposed trajectories, things like that, to share information in a much better way so that the whole profession, or at least, you know, people who opt into it, get to do that together. And that, to me, has been a huge stumbling block for our profession because it has been so inherently introverted and focused on intellectual property and that secret sauce and that's all ours and we can't share that and and then you see every firm inventing the exact same tools to do the exact same things that's just a terrible process to witness happening with all these firms and i mean as i sit on the aia's large firm roundtable for the technology side of things Every firm is like raising their hand. Yep, we made that too, that tool as well. Yep, we made it as well. And and it's like, well, what if we started doing these together, right? What if it's it seems obvious, right? But but creating a set of standards for the profession to live by rather than every firm doing it on its own. And beyond just just these these various firms, I mean, even just the uh, folks in, in the sort of extended community, like 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 yourself and all the others, uh, sort of providing a platform for the conversation to happen. Um, I've just been, I've been along for the ride and I've been listening to a lot of podcasts like this one and, and others and sort of web platforms where there's discussions happening, whether it be, you know, practice of architecture or, or various Facebook communities. And mm-hmm. I think that without platforms like this, from a communications perspective, we would be even much more behind. So I think in a way we're sort of like just, uh, you know, we're, we're, pulling back the curtain a little bit and pretty soon I think the sun, the sunshine is going to come all the way in. Um, so, I mean, tell me what's, uh, this, this Gable media, what's, uh, what's around that? I've noticed a, a lot of various groups have been involved in coming together. Yeah, I, I think it's, it is kind of like what we're talking about. It's creating a collective of people with a similar purpose, which is to share everything that they know and to really start to level that playing field. So Gable media is a, a network, a media network, and right now, it, I think it just consists of podcasts, but the goal is to get beyond that and go with video. And obviously, there's there's lots of different ways to communicate, right? But sharing information, getting collect these voices heard, there's so many good ideas out there. Good ideas can come from anywhere. Let's, let's have these conversations in public. And to me, like the conversations that you and I have that I've had with Ian that I've had with Clifton that I've had with Randy the people who have been on the shows that have gone out already those have always just happened behind closed doors and I don't mean like in a private office but at a conference you know it's you and somebody else hanging out you know getting a coffee and it's us having lunch and it's us in the the Trimble suite and we're having these amazing conversations that nobody else gets to hear and so to me, it's really just about putting it out there and allowing people, like you said, behind the curtain and just saying like, this is, there's nothing inherently private about this. And it's, in fact, it's much better to do it in public. And so I think that's really the purpose of Gable Media is to empower people who share to do that as big as possible, right? To reach the biggest audience possible. So there's going to be a lot of cross-pollination of getting the, the shows out there, getting the podcasts out there, getting the video out there. Like I'm listening to Practice Disrupted right now. I'm listening to their shows and they're talking with Nels from Rotolab. And it's an amazing conversation. Like I wish I had that podcast. I wish I had that interview here, right? But I'm so glad that they're having that because everybody has these different connections and this gives us a place to kind of put all that together and create a really well-rounded place for people to go to get information on architecture within the architectural community. So it becomes kind of this library of sorts, right? And you know that the content's good because it's all under this platform that has its own brand and it's kind of curated. Um, And so you trust it, like you build trust over time and you know that you're going to get great information there. So you can go there and look through the library and pick and choose your different shows that you want to listen to and have that information at your fingertips. And and because it is all time shifted, right? And like none of this is live, it's all available on demand whenever you want it. You can just, it's all a reference library. So you can just grab it when you need it. And I, th- I think some of it's very specific like that. It's going to be very topical. And then other stuff like my show and this conversation that we're having is wide ranging. It's kind of what's the pulse right now and keeping people kind of 
you know, up on that pulse and seeing what's going on out there that they normally aren't uh, exposed to. That was a long <laughs> answer for your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, it's fine. And and I, I think the, the, the key takeaway that I have is that, that you all are leading by example. And then hopefully there will be some, it'll, it'll influence firm leaders yes. uh, to see, okay, there's, there's a lot of folks out there that are sharing information and communicating and, and, and helping try to solve some of our challenges. Maybe, maybe we could be more open to it. Right. So there's, there's that aspect is kind of like the in-house community side of things, which is our practice. But then, because really this is about conversation and sharing knowledge, I think that we have a lot to learn from other industries still. And so it'd be interesting to see uh, other, you know, representation from outside industries come into a lot of our events because whether, you know, whether they be podcasts or events or whatever, there, there's, there is a lot of, of, a lot of inbreeding amongst architect, yeah. architecture community. We, right. we talk, talk a lot to ourselves. Um, so I think both the communication from us to learn from, let's say, you know, manufacturing industries or, 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 or even developers for that matter, they're close, close enough, um, um, or, or other sort of technology related industries, um, uh, we, we could provide value from, but then also it's, it's the other side of the way that we could also, you know, impart maybe some of what we know onto, onto those industries as well. Yep. I totally agree. I, I, and I, I love that you put that out there because it's something I think about a lot, which is that it just shows that it's okay to share this information, right? Really good things come from sharing this, this information opportunities come up from sharing this information and it's actually doing a disservice to you to hang on to it all and hang on to it really tightly. Like you said earlier, when you were talking about blockbuster, right? Like how, how are they going to hang on to the video rental business? Like it's not, there's no point. You might as well just let go. Right. And I, I kind of feel like that with all this information, there's a reason why reality shows are so popular, right? Everybody wants to disengage from what they do and learn about something else. And they want the behind the scenes look at it. And I feel like podcasts and YouTube and those are great ways for people to get, get exposed to architecture and the business of architecture, the design of architecture, how buildings work, what do designers pay attention to when they're working on projects, like the psychology of that. I think there's so much information there that could be shared that people would be so interested in that would get them more into architecture that would be great for the profession. And so there's so many opportunities there. I, my mind's running wild right now. Yeah, well, there is opportunity or there is something to be said around the knowledge that your that you have or your firm has. That's why somebody wants to hire you. Right. So there is there is the competitive advantage of having having something that somebody wants that nobody else has. Now, yeah. I think the the way that I would spin that is to say how much of what we, we know and, and have is actually really unique. I think we would find out that not much of it is in the, the part that is there's other ways to leverage that than just to, to, to keep it quiet. Right. So one way is to productize it. So I think that's, what's interesting about some of the opportunities coming out of Hypar, where if, if you have different uh, knowledge that you could embed into technology and then sell that as functions, then, then that's a way for your firm to start uh, gaining income and revenue off of your knowledge or, or individual or individual, whatever you're representing, uh, that's not a design contract, right? So there's your knowledge and you're leveraging that for, for value. That's an absolutely fantastic example because, uh, and it might not be something that you would make a ton of money off of, but it's more than zero. And if you're another firm who's starting up, who doesn't have to spend all the time and the hours and the education to figure out how to do that exact same thing. Of course, they're just going to pick the easier way to do it, which is what you, the work that you've already done. And so they would gladly pay you for that, right? And so you're not simply doing work for clients in that case, like in the high par sense, you could hopefully be helping the rest of the profession, your competitors, right? In some cases, but Usually they're not your competitors. Usually they're in completely different locations and different markets and things like that. And by codifying that expertise into a thing that somebody else can use, I mean, that's a fantastic way to share your experience and get something out of it too. And hopefully they're even going to come back and say, what if it did this? And you're going to say, well, that would make it better. 
and you're going to have the ability to do that. I, I love that it just starts to snowball, and I think it, it opens up new conversations that we're not used to having in this profession. Yeah, and and it, it goes back to, you know, a, a building owner is not in business to hire architects or to develop drawings. They're in business to have a building and to operate whatever their business is. Yeah, there, There's constant pressures to become more efficient, um, to have better products, you know, all the typical levers that everyone's trying to, to, to pull and, you know, tighter schedules, all these, t- you know, typical things. And with all these pressures, uh, if you could have a competitive landscape where you can make things more efficient, it's, it's, it's really an industry problem, right? Because if, if we don't uh, make the profession more efficient and be able to be competitive in this industry, then these building owners are going to look elsewhere. Yeah. And I think for the most part, they don't care what software you're using, right? They don't care what tools you use to get the job done. There's some times where you're going to get a request for a certain thing, for a certain way for it to be done. But rarely is that the actual, like nobody's motivated by that on the owner side. They really just want their building, right? And so if we develop tools to make it so that we can make buildings better or faster or like any of those metrics that you just described – you can do a service to the whole profession and make that available to them so that they can do that too, so that architects can touch more buildings so that we can have more of an impact on our communities. I I think at some point you just have to start shifting away from this is all about us and start thinking more broadly about the profession, the community, the world, where we actually have the ability to make things better. And it doesn't always have to come down to us 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 all the time yeah and i mean the the design and construction industry is so big and and you know operations i mean the, the building life cycle is so big it's it's just un, unfathomable you, we we there's there's so many areas to play and operate that if, if it was limited i would think that that maybe may, there might be more guarding but but there's so many different spaces that that we can play in that i think that it really just comes down to being innovative, collaborative, and to keep keep the foot on the gas. Yeah, yeah. So one of the one of the topic ideas that you wanted to talk about was data driven design. Um, you know, coming at that from different perspectives and kind of maybe the the dearth of that. I mean, we see it here and there. We see people making decisions based on data during the design process. But this is something that Gary Technologies and you guys are doing at Trimble. Is, is kind of normal for you. So can you explain what what are you thinking about when it comes to data-driven design and and like how to actually leverage that data to make better decisions throughout the process? You know, if you think about it, a lot of people, when, when you say something like data-driven design, the first thing that comes to mind is like parametric design or something something along those lines, right? Where you're, where you embed some level of intelligence into a model and you could uh, use that parameter to adjust your design and then maybe get some reports out of it, right? Mm-hmm. To say, okay, did I increase the amount of steel on this project or whatever, or did I reduce the amount of floor to floor height or whatever sort of information that you're looking for. But I think, I think in pockets, uh, it's just a general observation that, that our, our industry, uh, we have a lot of successes in pockets for sort of, uh, using data in the design process. But I would say as a whole, and um, and maybe this is just because I, I get the opportunity to to work across a lot of different uh, designers, contractors, owners, uh, just by definition and what in what we do at, at Trimble. I would say as a whole, there's quite a lot of traditional design going on out there. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have a design objective, you have your requirements, you, you have your deadlines, and you sort of follow a you know, a checklist process to say, okay, are we, are we uh, going along these lines? Okay. We let's reduce the amount of steel in this, in this project. Okay. Did we do that? Um, uh, there's a, a lot of narrative involved, you know, weekly updates and, and when you communicate to, to the client, a lot of it is narrative based, mm-hmm. right? Like, okay. Yes, we got there. Thumbs up. We have less steel, but kind of what our approach is, is to fundamentally embed a data driven process into the workflow, right? So that's completely different than than spot checking. And so if you think about it, I think a lot of times uh, architects will 
focus on the drawing set and there's a lot of metrics that will be pulled out of a drawing set right mm -hmm. like um you know how many sheets we have what are our various legends and spec sheets and and all these different uh, metrics around drawings and and i think that's maybe one of the areas that firms have been succeeding in but if you ask them okay what are your top three goals for the for for a project is it is it around sustainability is it around community access is it what all these different things first of all having the ability to to convert those major overall project goals into something that could be measured mm -hmm. right and then taking those measurements and and creating a structured data set around those measurements that you can then have a live temperature of the project and understand if you're getting towards towards where you're trying to accomplish and if you think about it and this goes back to some of the conversations about billability and how we charge as architects and and a lot of times you'll see that the average short sort of junior architect out there is sort of working up against a deadline and 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 you're you know staying all night the the last couple of nights uh, right before a deadline well why is that you know why is that always the case because there's there's more time you got you got to use it yeah <laughs> you have to. So, so then that's the question is if if you were to replace knowing how far along you are with a project with from a deadline to quantity of what quantity of design development Right. How would you do that? Mm -hmm. I think that's the question. Interesting. One of the things that you brought up back when you were guest lecturing in my class is the idea of structured data and data smog, right? And I think that was the first time I had heard that term was when you you mentioned that. And and so can you explain that concept? Because the reason I bring it up is because you're talking about driving design decisions and goals and measuring against them. And I think most architects suck at structured data, right? Like every project's a little different. We name things differently. It's very hard to do comparative analysis between two projects, let alone 50 projects. So, and I guess I'm coming at this from like, why is that important to have structured data? Because I think more times than not, we're seeing data smog. Well, well, it's important if you want to use it. Yes. And that, that goes back <laughs> to my, my, initial, my initial sort of statement was, if you want to use data to have insight to track towards some some of your major goals for your project, then it has to be structured, right? Yep. So if if it's let's look at what some reasons why it might not be structured or 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 in a format that would allow you to use it for for analysis and for for benchmarking and and whatnot. You know, one would be sort of the the business as usual model, and this is probably one of the most things that we see, which is. You're using these technologies typically out of the box. Mm -hmm. uh, they may be, you know, have sort of data sources that are assumed by technology companies. They may um, have bad information. They may have missing information. They may be spotty. So if you just sort of operate as this business as usual, you know, okay, let's use this this software um, for this purpose. Let's use this software that for that purpose. You're going to end up with all of these different sort of poorly formed data structures within a project. And that's sort of human nature for a lot of uh, these uh, project execution teams is, is you'll you'll just pick up a, a software, open it up and start using it. And then you're sort of stuck just with the data as is. Um, so that's one sort of challenge. Then another challenge would be uh, the fact that, uh, you know, SaaS or the ability to uh, maybe test software out uh, quickly and easily on the internet mm -hmm. um, rather than the old, old older models where you'd have to call in or, or, or buy a DVD and install it and spend hours and hours to get a software going. Right. Now it's the, the barrier to entry for a software has been extremely reduced. Mm -hmm. So you could be uh, up and going on a new software platform for your project uh, sometimes within you know, a matter of minutes. And although that's that's good, what it means is that firms are testing out yes. uh, different platforms, and then that leads to data silos. You know, some, some people have been testing it, others have not. Right. Uh, you know, whatever the the end result may be, but it's generally not healthy to have uh, 500 different freemium software platforms sort of on your project in these various spots along the the life cycle. Right. Yeah, it's a uh, it's interesting because. 
you know, one, one of the things that comes up a lot in different conferences is the buzzwords like AI and ML, you know, and big data. And, and I would argue, and I've heard it argued many times, that architects don't understand the meaning of big data because we don't have it. We like the term because it's an bu- industry buzzword right now, but there's no – if we can't even compare two models together because they have a different data set, different naming schemas, different database platforms that they're writing to, and, and you can't tie it all together, how are you going to do that with 100? And even then, it's not big data, right? You're, you're talking about tying the entire industry together to actually get big data where things can be learned from by a machine to help you make those decisions. So like, I guess what that comes back to, and I'll just pose this for you, is like, what's the point? Right. If you if you never have enough data to make a decision off of, or if you have all these unstructured data smog silos, how does somebody even begin? Like, and I think that's just I'm just asking the question. I think a lot of firms ask is what's the point? Like, because it's going to take so much effort. Well, well, you know, the the first thing would be to to not try to use data because it exists, right? Like, so let's not start with the with the mechanism. Let's start with the question. So, and sorry, this might be the consultant in me, right? <laughs> so, what are the goals of the of what we're trying to do, whether it be firm wide or whether it be from a project perspective? And um and 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 I think everything has to roll up to that because otherwise, you know, you're just spending uh, resources on something that may may not be beneficial to to what you're trying to accomplish so so you know we'll always start with a goal um and then once once those are clearly defined the way you use data to uh, either help help you make progress towards those goals or or even track if you're if you're trending in the right direction or not i think that's the real sort of meat of the question and and then it, it comes down to uh, looking at what is existing within sort of the current ecosystem, the sort of current state, and then what is the map towards the future state, right? So, and then every everybody's along this sort of journey at different uh, uh, phases. There may be some firms that are actually pretty close to what they're trying to get to towards their future state, and they just got a couple of small roadblocks. Or you may have some that are saying, hey, you know, if these are our top three goals as a company, and if you look at our tech stack, it's a mess, mm-hmm. then there might be some major overhauls that need to be done. Um, but then it comes down to having either in-house resources and understanding of how to how to do those overhauls or to look for sort of specialists and experts to help help along the way. But but I think it, it 100% comes down to, you know, what's trying to be accomplished and to be to be realistic. And that that way you at least know are you anywhere near where you want to be? And if not, what are the things that you need to do to get there? Yeah, I think like to answer my own question, one of the one of the big things that people have to decide is, do you want to get better? And and if you want to get better, how are you going to measure getting better? And that has to do on the project level. It has to do on the staffing level. It has to do on the industry level or the business level. There's so many different places where that can matter. And, you know, the old adage is that, like you can't manage it if you don't measure it. And, and to your point, you, you don't just measure everything because you're not going to manage everything. you got to pick your top three things or whatever. But if you don't measure it, you don't even have the option of using that data to help make you better. It's just a feeling, right? And, and feelings, I, I'm pretty sure that like the client doesn't care about your feelings, right? And so when it comes, and I I guess the reason I bring up clients is because I think that proving design decisions is going to be a requirement based on the data and clients are going to be expecting that, not just asking for it, but fully expecting that. So when it comes to it, you're going to make a decision and you're going to have to be able to point at the data and say, here's why we made that decision. You can't just say, well, it's based on my previous experience on these many projects. Like I, on sometimes sometimes that'll that'll be okay as an answer, but I don't think in the future that's really going to matter so much anymore, right? They're going to put that in the feelings category, and they were going to want to see the data category. Why did you decide this at that time, right? And you're going to have to yeah. be able to point at it and prove it. Yeah, and why wait until it's a, a requirement? Because totally. that could take, it could take some time. You know, everybody has different sort of working styles and different clients may have different working styles and and why wait until our everyone's backs are up against the wall and saying by the way you need to show us the proof 
Right. And or else, you know, we're not going to believe you and we're going to move on to the next. Right. Uh, you know, we have an opportunity to say to equip ourselves as much as possible with insights. And and then, uh, you know, if we can move beyond the, the data problem and the organization of that data and get into where the real meat of the, the, the discussions can happen, which is around the insight. Right. So what kind of design insights are we pulling out of that data? Um, maybe some predictive analytics around some of these insights and everyone's sort of focused around the data problem. To me, that's the boring and maybe the solvable space. If, yeah. if everyone could just get their acts together, the real interest is in how are we solving problems with insights from that data? Yeah, it, there is a learning curve, but it is a means to the end, right? The end is way more interesting than the means in, in this question, right? Of why even do it? Because yeah, if you can make actionable decisions and you can prove it and you can learn something about how to do it better the next time and you can point at the trail that got you there, I think that's that's fantastic. Not only from a, the next project's going to be better perspective, but from, again, like this whole idea of knowledge sharing and why do we do it this way becomes very shareable, right? Because it's it's all right there. You have the the stuff to base those conversations on. And when you're bringing in emerging talent into your firm and you're transferring knowledge because they're going to be the next series of ownership and leadership in the company, you've got this basically the breadcrumb trail of how you got there. And it's not locked into somebody's head, right? It's not just a feeling. It's not any of those things that are way more intangible. It's very tangible at that point. Yeah. One of the things though that I think we will have to tackle is you know, it is a real shift in culture because once you start to use information and data in pretty much most aspects of how you're managing a project, then that's that's transparency, right? Yep. And and not everybody works well with transparency. So, mm-hmm. so that's a cultural shift where I think maybe uh, maybe sort of the, the newer generations coming up are maybe more open mm-hmm. to uh, to transparency. Um, but it also has added accountability. I mean, there's a lot of things that go behind this, and what it's, I think, if, what you're going to see is people that that maybe aren't as comfortable with with that accountability and transparency behind their work, um, fighting it. Yeah. And I think that should be a red flag to mm-hmm. everybody when 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 you propose, hey, if we set this thing up like this, it'll show us, you know, how how far along we are with X, Y, and Z, and somebody says no, mm-hmm. then. You know, you should ask them why, why, why they're not interested in seeing that information. Um, so there, there's that. I think that's going to be a challenge that we're going to have to deal with, and it's not going to be for the next two years. I think that that'll be something over the next ten years that yeah. that we'll be fighting. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I think that that's a great place to kind of start to wind down here. I, I I love to kind of tie these episodes together with some common questions so if you're up for it i would love to ask you a few of those now uh the first one is like what is something that you do lucas that really helps yourself perform better like something personal to you that you feel like makes a difference in your life and it could be tech or analog physical digital doesn't matter i think that everybody's kind of got something that they do and maybe it's a lot of things but but just pick one there's a couple of maybe tactical things like the use of OKRs and, and looking at key results. You know, I think it's always good to have the, the bigger picture in mind and what you're trying to accomplish, you know, over the a specific time frame and then tying that to key. Am I getting there in my own life and in, in, in business and and along the way? That way you have markers that let you know if you're generally drifting in the right direction or not. But I'd say uh, especially during uh, this these coronavirus times, um, you know, staying active from a performance perspective, maybe if there's, you know, something big coming up, uh, a, a good workout uh, in advance of that that event or whatever it may be. Um, and then just, you know, staying in the sun and keeping that vitamin D coming in. I think uh, without being active and, and, and staying healthy, you know, performance, performance drops. Totally second that. I'm a huge advocate of that as well. And I think, uh, I've always done goal setting, but I haven't heard of OKR and key results. Could you go a little bit more into like what kind of tools do you use? I mean, even if that's just pen and paper or whatever, but like what do you do? What kind of questions do you ask yourself or what kind of metrics do you set for yourself to to measure if you're getting there? 
Yeah, you know, so, uh, okay, I mean, very, you could use these types of methods in a variety of, of ways and different levels of rigor. Um, I would say I, I use them pretty lightly in terms of just creating some some major milestones that I'm looking to achieve. And then the key is is setting some of the objectives that you're making sure that you're meeting that are working towards those milestones. In other words, if, if you don't do this, then you didn't accomplish your goal. So do you actually put like time constraints on those? Yeah. And actually where we're using this kind of the most is uh, my, so my wife is an interior designer. She runs AVR interior design. And this is something that we're implementing mostly within her practice. I, you know, I help support from the business side of things uh, here and there. And, uh, and, and she's in a growth model right now. Right. So she's, she left sort of a, her traditional career and doing sort of multifamily and, mm-hmm. and mid-rise, high-rise buildings and, and is, is doing this on her own now. So uh, she's got some growth goals that she's looking for. And so this is a, you know, an idea would be if you're looking to have this many projects of this uh, order of magnitude, size, budget, um, what do you need to do to get there, right? So that we would identify the the next uh, three to five things that would happen by this date. And if those things don't happen, like, you know, uh, reaching out to this many uh, developers or, you know, whatever the metric might be, if that didn't happen, then you're likely not going to see, to see your results. Right. Interesting. That's really cool. And, and like I said, I've, I've done a lot of goal setting and stuff, but I really feel like if you don't give yourself kind of, like you said, milestones, deadlines, or at least like put a marker out there somehow so that you know that you're on the right path or not, and then you can make adjustments along the way. But if you don't do that, if you just kind of throw it out there too far, how do you know if you're actually getting there? I think that's a that's a good point. So thanks for sharing that. That's really cool. What are you listening to or reading right now? What's influencing Lucas? Listening to all of Gable Media. You guys are on fire. <laughs> um, uh, reading, I've been... I've, tried, I've been trying to self-educate more in the real estate side of things. So I've been reading a lot of real estate books, uh, some of the basics, you know, that you get on the, the ULI reading list. Um, but one one that was kind of inspiring, and this is maybe I read maybe a year ago or so, uh, is, is Architect and Developer by James Petty. And the reason why I say it's inspiring is because he's is written by an architect that talks about tangible ways that people can get involved in the development process that are like I said, are tangible, right? That they're not scary, that you can maybe build some equity, even personal equity. Um, and we have our own project coming up. We're doing a, you know, single family home in, in the desert near LA. And, and um, so, you know, just, just various real estate books out there. Some others like how real estate developers think. And I'm also in a community. I live south of LAX and I, I live in a very NIMBY rich community. And it's very interesting because, you know, uh, having recently been licensed a couple of years ago, I've been trying to be more active as, you know, doing my my civic duty and being an architect in my community and, and going to all these project reviews and and being involved in the city council a little bit. And and it's very divisive. The, the nimbyism is 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 so, so divisive out there that um, that I'm trying to find a way to approach the community um, that educates them a little bit more about how why developers do the things that they do and and they're not necessarily just developer equals evil right, yeah, right. i mean yes there may be overdevelopment but but these are the questions to have let's not just be black and white let's ask really what is overdevelopment and what does our community need and and so i've been just trying to find nuggets of information and in readings uh to help sort of support those cases very cool all right. So la- last thing is just where can people find out more about you or follow along with what you're doing and zero sixty and where can people find you? A, a lot is on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn at Lucas Reams and uh, sort of lightly engaged on Twitter uh, at Lucas Reams. Um, but you know zero sixty dot io if if you'd like to apply for an upcoming cohort, we should have instructions on that shortly. Uh, so those are the areas that I watch is. Zero uh, sixty is also on LinkedIn, so I'd really, really go there if you're looking for the main source. Yeah, there's several other zero uh, sixty sites out there that lead to nowhere. Zero sixty dot com, zero sixty dot net. Those are not the right places to go. So zero sixty dot io, zero sixty dot io, and then also on uh, the Gary Technologies Trimble Consulting site is trimbleconsulting.com. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.